Hi, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have, of course, done this podcast, but also written three dozen cookbooks, including the Instant Air Fryer Bible. You know we love air fryers because we love crunch. We just had eggs and sausage and toast last night, and it was a baguette from the freezer, and we broke it into pieces and shoved it in an air fryer and heated it up. It took like two minutes. You don't have to turn your oven on. It's so good. It was crunchy and delicious right out of the freezer. You throw everything in the air fryer, basically. (laughs) Just throw it in there. Even your goldfish. Whatever. You throw it all in there. Okay, anyway, the instant air fryer bottle. Yeah, you can make gefilte fish out of that. Oh, no. Nobody wants warm gefilte fish. It is a carp. Stop. We are going to be talking about, in this episode of our podcast, cooking burnout. We're going to give you a one-minute cooking tip, as we always do. Bruce has an interview with Katie Parla. You'll want to check this out. We seem to be on an Italian tear lately. We'll talk about that when we get to it. And, of course, what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. Cooking burnout is a real thing. People get tired of doing it, and it mm. really peaked during they the do. pandemic, right? They People do. were stuck at home. So they what do. do you do? You know, look, we make about 200 meal-related wait. decisions every day. Wait, what? Wait, say, what? Say that again. Who's this? First of all, who's the we? People. People who cook dinner. People who eat. People who live in this country make about 200 meal-related decisions every day. That seems like seriously well, think a, about a it. first world problem. I mean, seriously, I... Uh, Maybe okay, I'm but, wrong, we, but this but... podcast is being delivered to the first world. <laughs> well, no, it's actually being delivered globally, but 200 meal well, okay. Decide right. what to eat, how to cook it, how to serve it, what silverware you're going to use, oh, what plates you're going to use. You're going to eat at the table or eat on your lap. Oh, what my... TV show are you going to watch while you eat dinner? Lap, all of these... paper, <laughs> napkin. Okay. <laughs> we're, now we're out. All of these, look... You go into the supermarket, you see a thousand varieties of apples, you see a hundred varieties of chilies, you see two thousand different boxes of breakfast cereal. It's true. So how do you decide what you want to eat? You make a million decisions. Well, yes, and I should say, if you don't know this, I'm the writer, Mark is the writer, and Bruce is the chef, and... I rarely, rarely cook. Rarely. I mean, Bruce makes lunch. He makes dinner. And I am very conscious of the fact that he is always on the edge of burnout. Not necessarily (laughs) always, but he is often on the edge of burnout. And when we're writing books, when we're in book production mode... He really gets to burnout stage quickly. Because, Those are the days you know, I say, let's have pizza tonight. Yeah, because when uh, we live so rarely, you can't even have pizza delivered. Where <laughs> no, we live. but we get to go out for it. But um, it, it it's I can I can watch it happen, and I have to say that. Um, let me also back up and say that again. I don't cook very much, and Bruce was out of town doing cooking classes in Boston a few weeks ago, and I, uh, I made eggs and toast for myself for, for dinner because that was the level of energy that I could put into my life that day. So there you go. I, I mean, I, th- I totally understand the burnout thing. I said earlier there's like 2,000 different boxes of breakfast cereal in the supermarket. If you got breakfast burnout, just pick a different box of flavored Cocoa Crunch <laughs> and Fruity Punch you know, and can I, can I, can Marshmallow I cereal. Can I put an aside in here? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my mom, who is still alive, my mom's 90 and still alive, and um, she now lives in an independent living apartment but in a larger facility, but she's still living independently at 90. And I have to say that what what would we say six years ago, pre the pandemic, so eight years ago, my mom just 
hit total burnout. She was like, done. She was done cooking. But she cooked she finished. three meals a day she for did. like 70 years. She did. I, I will tell you that when I was growing up in Texas, when I was, wait, excuse me, when I was coming up in Texas, when I was coming up in Texas, my mother made a hot breakfast every single morning for my brother and me and my dad. And I mean a hot breakfast, well, like bacon and eggs. Which is or... why you don't like bacon anymore. <laughs> no, I, no I, on it. I like bacon. It's just I don't have this thing with it. As a Southerner who ate bacon probably three to four times a week, I just don't have this thing for it. But anyway, it doesn't matter. My mom made a hot breakfast. She made us lunches. She didn't make my dad lunch. He went out for lunch. But she made my brother and me lunches. And then she made a hot dinner. When I was a kid, we had enough money to eat out once a week. And it was a big deal whether we were going to eat out on Saturday night or we were going to eat out after church on Sunday. And that was a big deal. And that's what we had. And that's what we could do. And otherwise, mom cooked. I vote for Saturday night. It makes it much more well, festive. Well, it was kind of nice to go after, after but church, But then you too. miss love American style. <laughs> True. That Now we're really dating it. But uh, it was nice to go out after church, too, because, I don't know, we were all dressed up and we went out for a nice lunch. But anyway, well, what I'm saying is I watched my mom completely burn out. I oh, mean, she, did. she just – my dad had a terminal cancer diagnosis, and basically my mom didn't cook through it. No. She – Basically, just threw her hands in the air, and they ate fast food and takeout, and that was it. I even had to think about getting a meal service in for them when Dad was really sick before he died. So I'm just saying, all I'm saying by all of this long, personal, boring story is that I do think cooking burnout is a real thing. It is a real thing. And when you burn out because, you know, your mom, like, she spent a lifetime doing it, well— I don't know that any of these suggestions are really going to help her because no, she's done. She doesn't want to cook anymore. But, you know, if you're 20 and you're having cooking burnout or 30 or even 40 and you still have young kids, you can't afford to have burnout because you no. have to be able to still cook. So here's some things you could try. Add a new ingredient, something you've never cooked before. You might find it fun. You might find it delicious. So get a different cut of meat. You know, if you only are used to roasting a whole chicken, buy chicken wings or just buy chicken breasts. Or if you only eat boneless, skinless breasts, try chicken legs. Try something you've never tried before, and that might pique your interest. Now, I think so. And I do think part of the... Getting over burnout has been the incredible popularity of the Instant Pot and the air fryers because I think people had reached a point where they were just very tired of sheet pans and cast iron skillets and pots when they cooked at home. And they were looking for a little excitement, something interesting. And so Instant Pot and air fryers hit just at the right moment, it seems to me. Yeah, because a new appliance, just like a new ingredient, it's like getting a new toy or buying a new car. It's anytime you have a new fun gadget. You spend a lot of time playing with it, checking it out, and at least for me, when I get new kitchen tools, it always makes me want to make some really fun new things. I got a new wok, and then all I wanted to do was make Chinese food for a couple of months. Right. So get yourself a new pan, a new nonstick skillet, or get an air fryer, or just get a new really cool kitchen tool. That might just trigger I mean, you to do something. I have to say that uh, when I was in grad school, this is years ago, so this would be the mid-80s, and I was in grad school in Madison, and I started taking Bon Appetit, and this is how I actually got into cooking. I started taking Bon Appetit 
And there were these columns by Brooke Dodgney. I wonder oh if Brooke is still around. And Jinx and Jefferson Morgan. I wonder if they're still around. Anyway, there were these columns by these people in the old Bon Appetits. And they were quick cooking, cooking for two, etc. And I, I would wait for my magazine to show up every month. And I would cook through especially those columns, but also other things in the magazine. And part of it, I was, I was in grad school, but part of it was that it let me do something creative in the kitchen. And it was a source of inspiration for me. It was a way to say, oh, look at me, I'm making, I, you know, listen, it wasn't anything fancy, but look at me, I'm making chicken and rice casserole or something. Well, that is fancy, and that's nice, but here's something if you've got burnout. Don't go back to the same cookbooks you always use or the same websites day after day. There are no more cooking magazines, basically. <laughs> no. So don't go back to the same websites or the same books. Buy yourself a new cookbook or check a new cookbook out of the library right. or try some new right. websites you haven't tried before. Change the source of your inspiration. It may get you invigorated to do it just like a new appliance might or a new ingredient. Yeah, and uh, you know, try, there are all kinds of now meal services and ingredient services out there like HelloFresh mm -hmm. that some of them provide whole meals and some of them provide the pieces of meals that you have to put together. I have never tried these services so I can vouch for none of them. <laughs> But I do know that people are into it, and it, I do know it's a thing. It is, and it'll save you shopping. And I know shopping is sometimes something that really deters people from wanting to cook. It cuts down on some of those thousands of decisions you have to make because some of them are made for you. But here's something also. And can I stop and mm -hmm. say something? And also, I want to say this, Evan. This is a totally experiential, and it's just how I experience life. But I think that there is a way that when I lived in New York City, this is going to be so silly, but when I lived in New York City, it was easier to cook dinner than now when I live in very, very rural New England. And here's why. It doesn't have to do with being remote. It's that in New York, when you get out of something that you're doing, a rehearsal, your job, I mean, for me, it would be rehearsals or a French class or something that Bruce would get off work. I mean, you're going to, we would often walk home. I would walk home from rehearsals. Uh, I sang with a group and I would come home. Home, walk home from rehearsal, and you pass all these grocery stores, yep. and so you're like, oh, well, you know, I need to pick up a blah, blah, and a blah, blah, and a piece of chicken, and this and that for dinner, and it was, you know, you would come out of work, and you would walk across town from Park Avenue South over to where we lived in Chelsea, and you would pass a lot of grocery stores, yep. and, you know, you could go in and get prepared food or whatever. That is so much easier to me. I don't know why, and maybe the listeners to this podcast will disagree. It is so much easier to me to do that than to get in my car after work, drive to the Kroger parking lot, get out of my car, go in the store. There's something about that car park out into the store that seems hard. It seems like, oh, my gosh, do I have to do that? There's There was something about living in New York that yeah. you just walk past food stores. Well, cities do that, especially, you know, big, world-class, cosmopolitan cities. You know, when we go to Europe and we stay in big cities and you go to Paris and you go to Rome and you go to London, yeah. no matter where you're staying, whether you're airbnb or staying with friends or in a hotel, you're going to pass tons of little markets because big cities have that. Yeah. And that inspires you to eat. You'll see a bakery and it'll be a beautiful bread. You'll pass by a delicatessen or a butcher and there'll be sausages in the window or some ground beef. Right, and it makes you think, right. oh, I want a burger tonight. And it just makes you think of 
about what you want, and it makes it a it's, little easier. It's just different. I can't explain to you about burnout, but it seems to me that it's different. And again, maybe listeners to this podcast would disagree with me, but it seems to me different that when you're walking home from work and you walk past Whole Foods and you think, oh, you know what? I want a big salad for dinner. And, you know, you walk in, grab your salad stuff and walk out. That seems so much different than getting in your car after a day at the office and thinking, I want a big salad, and now having to drive to a Whole Foods, park in the parking lot, get out, go in, it seems harder. That seems it is. harder. And even if you do your shopping once a week, then you have to start thinking about, oh, what am I going to make on Tuesday? What am I going to make on Wednesday? And here's yeah. another tip, another piece of advice, especially if you're shopping once a week. Don't pressure yourself to reinvent the wheel every night, Right. You can eat the same thing a couple nights in a row. If your kids love burgers or yeah. your kids yeah. love, you know, fried chicken fingers and you yeah. oven fry them or air fry them, it's okay to make them a couple nights in and a row. Don't feel that you that, have to pressure yourself to make something different every night. I think that's really important. I, we've been talking about this endlessly, so I'm going to bring it up on our podcast. I saw an interview that Oprah Winfrey did, oh, several years ago, but I just saw it on YouTube. And she said something that has just stuck with me for weeks. Bruce and I have been talking about this endlessly. Oprah said that when she began her career as an interviewer, you know, for her talk show, the basic question she thought that sat at the bottom of everyone was, am I good enough? Am I good enough at to do this? whatever I'm doing, right. Whatever it is, dealing with my children, dealing with life, deal, am I good enough to handle it? Am I good enough to be an actor? Am I good enough to be a singer? Blah, 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 blah. You know, all different kinds. And she said, basically, when she started her career, she felt like that was the baseline question that everybody had, mm -hmm. is am I good enough? Over the course of her career, she claimed that the question changed. And the question by the end of her interviewing career and when she was giving this interview, the basic question under everyone had become, am I okay? Mm. And the difference between am I good enough versus am I okay, she was saying this is the pressure, stress, and craziness of what has happened in the last 30 years. And we're all now at this position where our baseline question is, am I good Okay? Is it really okay right now? And what that requires is self-care. And self-care yeah. really means take care of yourself, take care of your kids without the pressure of worrying about making something new for dinner, right? So make the same thing you know they like. It's not a problem to make a salad three nights in a row if you like salad. It's not a problem no. to give yourself grilled cheese if that's what you like for dinner. Yeah. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And what that leads into is don't expect too much from a meal, right? Dinner is not going to change your life. Yeah, we really are at the question of, am I okay? Mm -hmm. Don't expect too much. Because life is just feels so crazy. Right? It feels so... I mean, I know that I'm older and I'm more susceptible to it, but life just seems so much more insane than it was it 30 years ago. It is. And if you expect too much from one meal, you're only going to be disappointed. You're yeah. only going to beat yourself up. Yeah. Remember, dinner doesn't have to be fancy or elaborate. Assembly-only dinners are fine. You can even consider doing a healthy snack buffet for dinner. Take out the hummus and the crackers and the olives and the cheese and the pickles. It's delicious. It's easy. Yeah. And you don't have to do anything. I, I, I want to tell you that a lot of days from lunch, Bruce will make a simple chopped salad of tomatoes, cucumbers, and bell peppers with olive oil, red wine vinegar, salt, and pepper. That's it. 
And then he chops a little bit of that up, and then we have prepared hummus. I put some, like, crumble some feta on my salad. Olives, pickles. We have olives from the olive bar. We have pickles. We have those pepperoncinis. We have those little mm-hmm. red peppers that are the pepadoos. We have a lot of stuff off the salad bar to go along with it. Sometimes, if I don't put feta on my salad, I'll have a little piece of cheese with my meal. You'll even grab a piece of sliced cheese if I have I it will. in the house from, like, from the deli counter. You will. We had a photo shoot for the Instant Air Fryer book months ago, and we had a lot of sliced cheese in that because we were making grilled cheeses and all. I would literally just peel off a piece of sliced cheese, sliced American-style Swiss cheese, mm-hmm. and I would put it on my plate with the stuff. I mean, it's in other words, we're we are cookbook writers, and we're doing it as easy as we can while trying to get good, fresh nutrition inside of ourselves. But that means that one week, one week out of the last two years, I made hummus. <laughs> one week, otherwise we buy it. I know, yeah. and I know. Listen, my made hummus was better than the store bought stuff. But you know what? Come on. Give me a break. I just look for what's on sale at the supermarket, yep. and I just pick up cartons of it's it. It's all about self-care, making sure that you are taking care of yourself and your family and not putting any stress under yourself, not putting yourself under any stress about making dinner. It can be as simple as crackers and hummus, and you can avoid some serious cooking burnout. Before we get to the next segment of our podcast, let me tell you that we have a newsletter. It comes out every one to two weeks. It's a little sporadic. It says I can do it. Uh, (laughs) Right now, I am just coming off eight weeks of teaching Gertrude Stein, Sigmund Freud, and Marcel Proust. And believe me, I couldn't do a newsletter this week. So. Because I was at the last of Proust, and I just couldn't handle it. So every one to two weeks, let's say, you can sign up for that by going to our website, bruceandmark.com. And there's a sign up for the newsletter feature on that page. We've seen dozens of people sign up for that newsletter recently. Mm -hmm. And let me just say that I've set it up so I can't see you, and I can't see your email, and I can't sell it because I can't see it. I have no access to it. And anytime you want to cancel at the bottom of an email, there's a cancel this email at any point. This email, um, you know, list, get me off the list at any point. You can get back off of it. But if you go to bruceandmark.com, you can sign up for our newsletter there and find out more. It's not a rehash of this podcast. Instead, it's, oh, I don't know, there's been Bruce's knitting patterns, there's been recipes mm-hmm. that don't even come up on this podcast, mm-hmm. there's been bits about life, about my dad dying, uh, bits about our life, but uh, just a simple newsletter that comes out every Monday, every other Monday, depending on whether Bruce is in my life or not. <laughs> next on the podcast, our one-minute cooking tip as is traditional. What is it? It's all about browning meat. A tiny sprinkle of sugar on lean meats and fish will help with the browning so you can avoid overcooking. There's this very is little fat, really right? really big in, to me in fish fillets. Yeah, very little fat. And so if you want to get it brown, the only way you're going to do that to get the good Maillard reaction, right, yeah. of browning in the skillet yeah. is to let it overcook. So instead, you put a tiny sprinkle of sugar. And we're talking for a fish fillet. A pinch. A, a quarter teaspoon no, is not, way too much. Yeah, just a pinch. Literally way a pinch. Way too much. And that will help it brown without overcooking it. Yeah. Again, lean proteins, as Bruce said, 
they have a problem browning and the grill is really problematic for them because it's so hot that you really, you know, if you have those four ounce boneless skinless chicken breasts and you have a grill up at 700 degrees, they're done in about a second and a half. I mean, they really hardly get brown. If you were just to sprinkle the barest sprinkling of sugar along with your salt and pepper on the outside of them, they would brown up nicely. And let's face it, you eat with your eyes as well as your mouth. So there you go. You want it brown. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with Katie Parla. She owns a Italian food tourism company. She can be your personal guide if you want. And she is the author of the brand new book, Food of the Italian Islands. Today, we're speaking with Katie Parla. She is an Italian food expert, the cookbook author of many wonderful Italian cookbooks. And she runs a personal food guide service in Rome, where she lives, And she has a new book called The Food of the Italian Islands, Recipes from the Sunbaked Beaches, Coastal Villages, and Rolling Hillsides of Sicily, Sardinia, and Beyond. Welcome, Katie. Ciao. How are you? Uh, Ciao. So you live in Rome, but you write all about Italian food, and you're from New Jersey. So tell me a bit about your journey. Well, I grew up in an Italian-American family in New Jersey, that like so many identifies with Italy while knowing absolutely nothing about it. (laughs) And so I didn't visit Italy until I was 16. I went with my Latin class and just instantly became obsessed with Rome in particular. And so from the time I was a sophomore in high school, I devoted myself to studying Italy and Italian culture, ultimately moving to Rome 20 years ago in 2003. Um, And that's what started my path on a more sort of academic approach to food. I was always into food, grew up in a restaurant family. Dad had a restaurant in New Brunswick, New Jersey until 2022, did my master's in Italian gastronomic culture and a sommelier certificate so I could actually have some credentials to back up the job that I wanted to do. Was your family behind your going to Rome? I mean, yes and no. I think they were a little bit confused. Um, And probably didn't think I was serious when I declared as a 16-year-old that I would move to Rome eventually and live there forever, but jokes on them. (laughs) Well, your new book, uh, Food of the Italian Islands, is really beautiful, and the recipes are mouthwatering. And you start the book off with Sardinia, and which, as you explained, is actually a series of small islands. And tell me, Katie, what's unique about the food of Sardinia compared to the rest of Italy? Well, Sardinia proper is the second largest island in the Mediterranean. And like so many of the islands that I talk about in the book, isn't alone, right? In the southwest, there are more islands in the northwest and the northeast. And so I think if you wanted to find Sardinian culture, um, it's a bit challenging because it is so varied and diverse. But let's say in general, the food traditions date back millennia. It's a very Durham wheat-based society. So there are a lot of breads and pas made with Durham wheat that's grown on the island. There's lots of pork, so much pork, usually spit roasted, often mm. suckling. Yum. And uh, there's a lot of uh, you know herbs and, and produce and legumes. And probably I would say the most famous ingredient that leaves the island is botarga, which is cured mullet roe from a a tradition dating back to Phoenician times. So, you know, what sets it apart? You probably think, okay, Katie Parla, I've heard of all those things in other parts of Italy too. But the way that they're combined uh, and the way that they're seasoned is uniquely Sardinian. And I'll give you an example of bread. There's bread 
in every Italian region. Some excel at bread more than others. But if you look at the breads in Sicily, for for example, uh, a lot of the bakeries are selling pretty simple loaves with shapes that you can identify with words that are common. Whereas in, uh, like, I'm thinking round loaves or long sesame, uh, sesame rolled loaves. Um, but in Sardinia, the breads are incredibly ornate, even sculptural, and serve, you know, a dual purpose because they're not just edible. They're also uh, used for religious devotion. And so on certain holidays, you'll find that Sardinians will craft these amazingly ornate breads that have sometimes really abstract forms. Like some look like, I don't know, like a dinosaur project that like a kid did in elementary school and others are much more sort of visually expressive. And I'm thinking of the bread in the book that Gianfranco de Tori made. There's a whole section on Sardinian breads. Uh, and you can actually watch a video. There's a cute code that shows you how she makes it. And she starts by making a heart out of dough. Mm-hmm. And then to that, she attaches ears of grain, birds, interlocking wedding rings, uh, flowers. I mean, she makes lilies out of dough, roses. And it's a process that takes an hour to make the entire thing. And it's it's the most amazing thing to see. And you don't find that anywhere else. And you don't find uh, videos very often with QR codes in books. So that's really nice that your book really takes the readers right to Italy with you to see the things you've seen, for you to really show them the beauty of the food of these islands. Now, we've all heard of Sicily. And it, too, is made up of many smaller islands. But I don't think many Americans know about the Pelagi Islands. And where are they? And what's their culinary claim to fame? I highly recommend pulling up a map. Alternatively, you can turn to page 12 of Food of the Italian Islands. (laughs) And you'll see that, like, what you might call the mainland of Sicily um, has the Aeolian Islands in the north um, and if you sort of head south towards North Africa, um, that's where you find the islands in question. Um, They coincidentally all have names that start with L, Lampedusa, Lampione, and Linosa. And what's interesting about them is that they weren't really settled until about 150 years ago. Of course, in antiquity, people were using them as jumping off points and fortresses, but they're really out there and they're pretty susceptible to Uh, poor communication and travel from bad weather. So it wasn't until a a Spanish settlement and Spanish being the the ruling uh, domination in Southern Italy, including Sicily in the 19th century, they established little colonies there. And so people grew what they could grow, right? Things that are growing in inhospitable conditions, particularly classic of the islands are lentils harvested in the uh, hot summer and then dried so that they can serve as food in the cellar for the rest of the year. Uh, And Linoza in particular has a very prestigious, if nearly microscopic, lentil production. It's not that big of an island. And so in order to really enjoy these, you have to either be on the island or in the small trattoria or gourmet shops of Sicily that are lucky enough to get their allocation. 
And are they multiple kinds of lentils or there's one, is it a singular kind of lentil grown there? So to my knowledge, it's a single type. I can't really distinguish the difference between lentil varieties if they're the same color, mm -hmm. but they're sort of these brownish green lentils, super tiny. You cook them kind of in the same way all the time. You hammer them in liquid until they virtually burst apart. Um, and the other dishes that you might find that are really typical of uh, of the of the island, there's a pesto from Linoza, um, which is not that unsimilar from some in mainland Sicily. That is, tomatoes uh, are present. And herbs take a back seat. Hmm. Um, whereas, you know, Lampedusa is a is a much more touristed island. It doesn't have many people who live there year round. And so when you visit the restaurants and cafes and fry shops and bakeries, what you find are foods that are really heavily influenced by mainland Sicily. So you'll find eggplant parmesan, arancine, which are rice croquettes filled with meat and pea ragu, um, all sorts of potato dishes. And essentially lots of things that are easy to cook in single portion aluminum containers so that vendors can sell them to people headed to the beach because the beach doesn't have a lot of services. So you got to self-cater. Most of us couldn't imagine Italian food without pasta, but you write in your book how pasta was cooked and served on the islands of Italy centuries before the rest of the country. Why was that? And what were some of these early pasta dishes like? So we do definitely have historical documents that testify to pasta consumption in certain geographical parts of Italy, dating back to the Renaissance. Um, you could argue even that, you know, the Greeks introduced pasta to Italy, but as something that defined a cultural identity, that's not something that emerges until the 20th century. And it's hard to imagine Italy without coffee and pasta. <laughs> But those are both features of fascist era production and propaganda. And that's precisely why they are so heavily symbolic in Italian culture today. Dried pasta um, in the form of couscous um, was produced so that people in ninth century uh, Sicily, and it's called fregola in uh, Sardinia, but again, ninth century Sardinia, could use durum wheat in the future. You would mill it all in the summertime. And if you turned it into couscous or another pasta and dried it, it was a, a cellarable um, product with a long shelf life. And this tradition is introduced to both of those islands by the Arabic uh, culture that uh, conquered the islands and influenced the food and agriculture in a really considerable way. Just think that there were huge pasta factories outside of Palermo that would have been producing dried pasta something that wasn't introduced to the mainland in a large-scale way until the late 18th, early 19th centuries in the Bay of Naples area. Hmm. I think that probably isn't a surprise a lot of people to hear that. Now, I want to talk about some recipes in the book. I mean, the recipes are mouth-watering to read. The photos are gorgeous. You've got braised rabbit with white wine and olive oil, thin and crispy veal cutlets with a squeeze of fresh lemon, you get tomatoes split and roasted with Parmesan and breadcrumbs and the always delicious flatbread with tomatoes and onions. But Katie, is there one flavor, one ingredient that you think Italian island cooking can't be without? Oh my God, that's the hardest question anyone's ever asked about this book. <laughs> I mean, I think that there are, there are, there's not just a single one, right? Okay. I chose to write about these islands to show what, they have in common in spite of having really disparate cultures. Mm -hmm. 
um, as well as to showcase what makes them unique. So there isn't even a universal fat. Like in some parts of the islands, they use olive oil. In other parts, they use rendered pork fat. Strutto, one of my favorite ingredients. Mm. I mean, I would say generally the island flavors are land-based. So if I could say land-based ingredients, then that's it. You would think there would be tons of fish, mm-hmm. but fish was in the sea, which was super dangerous, uh, not just because of weather, but because there were invaders and pirates. And just generally, the, the, the sea is a, is a really terrifying place, particularly before modern technological navigation instruments emerge. Um, and plus, fish is super perishable. So where you do find fish in a lot of historic island recipes... It's dried or salted, you know, cured in some way with salt to preserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether you're in Linoza eating lentils um, or uh, Sardinia eating roasted lamb or Ischia eating rabbit, the signature iconic dishes of these islands are really rooted in the territory of the land rather than the sea. Fascinating. And Finally, desserts. I'm thrilled you have desserts in here, too. Everything from making your own marzipan fruits to simple sweet pistachio spread to drizzle on bread. That just took my breath away. It looked so amazing. And you have proven that desserts don't have to be elaborate to be satisfying and delicious. But if you, Katie Parler, were going to spend some time making a more complex sweet, what would your go-to dessert from your book be? I mean, the marzipan fruits are not simple because it's not a matter of making the marzipan. You also have to mold it into the shape of a fruit and then paint it. And I'm like particularly bad at that part. Um, I've got all the molds and you can too. If you go to Palermo, the book tells you exactly where to go to shop for them. And you can make marzipan artichokes and eggplants and strawberries and peaches that have split open. They've got molds for everything. But I think it takes a special talent, one that I do not have to paint them in a way that looks realistic like i can paint the strawberry red mm-hmm. but not in a way that's sort of spumata and nuanced with different ingredients i'm more like i'm more like the analogy for the bread that looks like a five-year-old made it that's <laughs> that's my marzipan vibe thankfully we shot the marzipan fruit which is called fruta martorana at a convent where they're experts well, they're beautiful, and the recipe for making the marzipan doesn't look that complicated. I can't wait to jump in and do it. I can't wait to make half the recipes in this book. Katie Parla, thank you so much for this beautiful book, Food of the Italian Islands. Um, you are a wonder and an amazing authority on Italian food. People need to know that they can actually travel Italy with you and experience it. But until they do that, they can experience it in your new book, Food of the Italian Islands. Hey, thanks for spending some time with me today. Grazie. Prego. Well, that was fascinating only because, and this is something that I'm going to admit in the podcast, I have never been to any Italian islands except some Venetian ones. <laughs> yeah, I want so, to go so badly I never, now. I have never been to Sicily, and I have never been to Sardinia, oh, and I want to go to Sardinia so bad. My shrink, oh, now I'm saying too much. When I, we lived in New York, my shrink took a month off every year, and she painted on at a house in Sardinia and would rent a house and paint in Sardinia, and it always sounds like... The 
the the best possible life to paint for a month on Sardinia. Oh I look forward God. to going to Sardinia and eating for a month. Yeah, that sounds fabulous. Okay, before we get to our, our final segment of this podcast, let me remind you that it would be great if you would rate this podcast, if you would subscribe to it. You can do that on any of the platforms. Uh, rating, not so much, but you can subscribe on any of the platforms. Rating, you can do on Audible or on Apple Podcasts. Just simply rate it and drop to the bottom. And if you would write a comment, even great podcast, that does wonders for us. And we really uh, appreciate it, given that there is no other support for this podcast except you. Thank you very much for that. Our final segment, as is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? Chinese sesame paste. Oh. It's different than tahini. It's toasted usually. It's a darker brown. It's a much more intense sesame flavor. I made a fabulous noodle dish this week. Which is going to be my favorite thing making me happy in food this week, so please go on. And uh, this this paste just thickens and flavors, and it's delicious. So rather than tahini or peanut butter, get yourself some Chinese sesame paste. Yeah, so my favorite thing, what's making me most happy in food this week, was this noodle dish Bruce made. And interestingly, I had done, and if you listen to this podcast, you know this, months ago, I did a big Iranian dinner party with all kinds of weird takes on traditional Iranian food that I kind of came up with. And we had gone to a Middle Eastern market in a city about an hour away from us, and uh, I had bought some Iranian dried pasta noodles, and they're very different mm. from Italian pasta. They're thicker, chewier, and much saltier. Almost like udon. They they reminded yeah. me of udon, and, and I use very those, salty. I use those as a base for this noodle dish. And the base the the basic recipe I followed was from Chinese home cooking. Uh, we've had the the author of that on this podcast before, and it's a vegan uh, Chinese book. And she had blended together sesame, Chinese sesame paste, and dark soy and light soy and vinegar. And I added some other really interesting things like um, some fermented uh, mustard greens into it. And I tossed that up with the noodles with dried tofu and cucumbers, and we just loved it. Yeah, it was really good. It really made me extraordinarily happy. We ate a lot of it. And uh, it was just so unbelievably fine and in many ways simple. So that's our podcast for this week on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thanks for being with us on this journey. Thanks for taking the podcast time with us. We know the podcast scape is really full. Podcast scape, listen to that. Really full of all kinds of choices and we very much appreciate that you've been here with us. And hope that you will come back by downloading another episode next week and the week after that and to subscribe and they'll be downloaded automatically to your app. So we will see you again on another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.